Have you ever had a fantastic experience with healthcare? What about a not so great one? Well, here at the Alenia Life Podcast, we're going to talk about it. The Alenia Life Podcast, a production of the Alenia Collective, exists to be a public resource to you, the listener, who at some point or another has been a patient of this crazy thing we call the healthcare system. Co-hosts and doctors of physical therapy, William Mills and Joey Rosie, interview experts in the fields of physical rehabilitation, fitness, and medicine, as well as the athletes and patients on their experiences with the good, the bad, and the ugly of healthcare. I was happy with that one. The topics discussed in this podcast should not be considered medical advice or a means of diagnosis. If you're in need of medical attention or advice, seek a licensed healthcare professional. Conversations in the Alenia Life podcast are intended for adult audiences only, and though we keep most topics professional, there is occasional strong language. Do you prefer to get introduced as Dr. Tim Gabbett? No, no, Tim Gabbett's fine. Uh, yeah, whatever, whatever you feel, whatever, uh, whatever you feel is, um, is appropriate. Uh, you know, I don't take myself too seriously as long as I, um, I don't get stitched up in a bad way and it's going to cause me stress Then I, <laughs> I don't, I don't mind too much at all. I, I don't yeah. take myself too seriously. So, okay. Yeah. But he um, has two PhDs. You have two, know, right? right? Yeah, Joey, I'm a, I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> That's all it is. <laughs> oh man. I don't think I've ever met a PhD that didn't want to go by a doctor, whoever they are. But you have two and you and you don't even care. No, well that's uh, I'm just a um I'm a big believer in remembering where you came from and um you know where I where I came from was pretty pretty humble, modest kind of beginnings. Uh, you know, I couldn't get into university. I um, you know, none of my friends have got, you know, my actual real close friends have got PhDs or anything like that. So, you know, we just, when we hang out, we're just, uh, we're, we're ribbing each other, you know, we're, um, mm-hmm. there's, ban- there's banter, there's, there's no, there's no hierarchy. It's, um, there's, you know, it's basically, <laughs> there's no, no one's safe. So, right. um, <laughs> you know, so that's, and then, and that's where I feel really comfortable, Right. you know, like I've, amongst amongst that kind of so you can just be yourself and and you're accepted for who you are it's um so yeah like doesn't it doesn't in the overall scheme of things when you when you come back to the people who matter your family and your friends it 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 doesn't really mean too much or change too much right definitely me and my friends are the same way we we almost show one another affection by giving them the most amount of crap possible yeah I get yeah. made fun of by them because I'm overly sensitive and I'm doing air quotations, but, <laughs> um, so, so that's, that was pre university, right? How did, how did you get into, how'd you finally get into the university? So have we started? Yeah. Have we started. We start. Okay, good. That, okay, I good. feel like uh, that's a perfect organic intro. So we'll just go with that. Yeah. Nice. How, how, what did I do pre university? Nice. Um, Look, uh, some of my my earliest memories were were following following my dad around when he was training mm-hmm. footballers, um, training athletes, and I used I used to I used to watch him compete. I used to watch him train, and then I used to join in with his training. And uh, you know, I just I loved trying to keep up with the 
the older, the, you know, the older men in the in the group. And I was a you know ten or twelve year old trying to keep up, um, and I, I learned so much about training way back then when I was ten years old that mm-hmm. you could you can never learn in a text from a textbook. Um, yeah. a, a lot of a lot of the stuff that we know from from the textbook, <clears throat> I've seen it before long a long time before I read about it. Um, you know, so so even acute and chronic loads intuitively i think most of us know about um right. you know because it's it makes sense but you know i i was kind of picking that up in in real life um as i was as i was shadowing my dad around mm-hmm. um, football fields and, and training tracks you know, yeah. i learned a lot there so how did how did you end up getting into university and what what sparked the path of undergoing two phd's well, the first, the first thing about getting into university, it, was, um, it wasn't easy for me. I, in, in high school, I worked really hard at my sport and um, worked so hard on my sport that I didn't have a lot of time for the actual reason I was meant to be at school, and that was to work hard at schoolwork. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I had, I had to put my time into something, so I put it into sport. Um, and I really enjoyed my time in sport and I learned a lot from sport, but I also paid the price for that. So my grades weren't great. I had to work extra hard to get into universities because no university would have me based on my grades. Um, so then when I eventually got in, uh, I just I just worked really hard to, to stay on top of the work. And then about halfway through the course, you know, I was getting better grades and I was, I was getting good grades. And... Um, it, it kind of clicked with me that okay, you're working hard, but uh, you're you're actually okay at this. You know, you found something that 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 you can you understand, and, and um, you know, it's, it's clicked with you. So, I, you know, I just sort of set myself a goal to to do as good as I could at at that particular career, and you know, the the PhD was kind of a, a logical progression. Uh, the 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 irrational progression is to do two PhDs. Like no one no one does two, PhDs, or very few people do two PhDs. You don't need to do two PhDs. Um, but I was I was working with a team, and we were, we were doing a lot of cool projects. And I just I always felt that um, one of the things that happens when you're working with a team is if something works or something doesn't work, no one ever documents it. No one ever. Uh, uh, you know, along the way, keeps a little diary of the things that have worked and, and haven't worked on the way. Um, so I just decided to, to put a front and back cover on the, the stuff that I was doing yeah. um, so that, that whoever comes into the sport next or whoever came into that team next had a reference point so they could go, okay, well, this is what, what didn't work. Let's not, get, let's not go down that path. You know, right. Tim's tried that and, he, and thanks to him, we, we know it doesn't work. Um, but this stuff seems to have some value. Let's let's see if we can jump on the back of that and um, see if we can push that a little further. Um, so that was kind of the, the rationale for the second PhD. Yeah. So what um, what do you do now to kind of balance? Because you still work with sports teams, right? That's, that's yeah. your is that your main like job? Like your day to day is working with sports teams. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, I work with with sporting teams predominantly. That's that's my main job. Mm-hmm. Um, the 
probably the, the and and sporting organisations, high performance organisations. There, it's it's basically my job is um, if if an organisation comes to me and says we've got this problem, and sometimes it's a load problem, yeah, but it's not always a load problem. I mean, a lot of people um, know or recognise my name because of the load work I've done, but there's you know like there's other there's other other areas of of work that I've done across across my career that. Um, people will come and talk to me about it. And some of that yeah. skill acquisition, some of it's, um, you know, coaching. It's It varies from, from sport to sport and, and organisation to organisation. Um, but day to day, I'll work with sporting teams. That's my main job. Um, the, the, act, the, se- the secondary job and, and the job that I don't actually get a lot of financial reward for is the research. Mm-hmm. Um, so... so um, pretty much my entire life, I haven't I haven't worked in a university, um, but I've done a lot of research, published a lot of research. But that's just been more of a more of a hobby. Um, so some people go fishing, some people go camping. For a long time, I I wrote papers. I kind of found it cathartic to write. Yeah. Um, but I never, I was very rarely have I been in a university system for any extended period of time where you actually get paid to do that job. Um, so it was, it was kind of like a, just a love job. I just, I just published it because I, um, I enjoyed the, you know, there's a problem here. Let's see if we can find a solution to it. Um, let's see if we can share the answers um, so that other people can learn from it um, and, can, and contribute to the body of knowledge. So that's kind of like a secondary, a secondary job for me, I guess. It's, not, it's, a, it's more of a, a love job than anything else. Yeah. So a question that, that comes to mind for me is how do you, and it, it, this happens all the time with, with clinicians, especially in the physio or physical therapy world where the, the mesh between what the current best evidence is and then clinical practice are always kind of butting heads because they're informing one another. But there's a lot of talk about how it's hard to keep up with the current evidence and then researchers say the current evidence that's being published is three years behind how do you how do you avoid like what's going on from a practical standpoint with your athletes versus what you're currently experimenting on or what you're seeing in the research trends ah yeah look it's it's always a challenge and it's there's always a bit of headbutting between the academic world and the, and the practical world. Um, so, you know, I remember back 15, 20 years where uh, we, we were working with high-performance athletes in a high-performance organisation and um, the conversation came up that, that academics just see the work that we do in high-performance um, sport as Mickey Mouse. It's not really sports science. It's not even science. Um, whereas um, the sports scientists in those domains are working with the athletes every day, looking at the academics, going, "We don't really care um, what you've what you've researched on a university population of students um, because it doesn't it doesn't have application to our real world, or that's not a question that is actually something that we're interested in." at the coalface so there's this you know to and fro you know but i think over i think in recent times uh universities and high performance organizations uh, are at least trying to work together a little bit better and the universities have um the academics the researchers they have a certain skill set um they 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 understand research process they understand research design 
and and the the scientists in the field understand the sport. So when when you get the two of those and you, you can work the relationship out well, you can get them working together, you can get some really good questions answered. Um, but I I've kind of always um, haven't seen them as being distinct en- entities. I've sort of seen them as as being a continuum. That, that research and servicing is just a continuum. When you're when you're a service provider, when you're at the coalface, you're constantly asking questions. You know, what if I did this differently? What if I did change this? Could I get this result? Um, so in itself, when you when you ask that question and when you test test it, that's a that's a form of research. It's not actually test tubes or lab coats, and it may not result in a publication. But but you're actually you're doing some research, you're like a little project to try and inform what you do down the track. So if it if it does happen that a certain way of doing things results in a better result, that feeds back on your servicing. So you get better support, which then you ask better questions. So you do another project. So it's a it's a it's a constant uh, continuum of, of research servicing rather than being at, at two polar ends of the spectrum. Yeah. It's, I would say it's similar to, um, it's similar in the physio world with, you know, um, or at least for me, whenever I was, whenever I was going through my schooling, my professors always encouraged us to be scientists, right? So like critically think for yourself and ask questions, always question whoever's giving you evidence. And whenever you get out in the field and you're practicing, create many projects with whoever you're working with. Don't just follow clinical prediction rules or whatever. In this Great way. advice. Yeah. 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 Look, I think, um, I think that's, that's really good advice. And, uh, you know, what we, what I, what I see a lot is, um, people, people telling other people, other clinicians what to think rather than trying to help them learn how to think and you know there's and that's that's the difference between you know probably a, a new grad who comes out of university who, who studied really hard and understands what the textbook says but then um taking it to the next level and, and finding well sometimes the textbook the things that we see in the clinic or the things we see in practice don't just marry up with what the textbook says so then we've got to work our way through this and go okay well why am I seeing what I'm seeing? Or um, the, the standard progression here isn't working. How am I going to get the result that I want and, but come at it from a different angle? Um, and that's, that's the, it takes time to learn that. Um, that's, it's a skill just like, any, like kicking a football or, yeah. or a free throw. You've got to learn how to think rather than just what to think. Right. Yeah, so, so the the basis of our podcast and what we talk most about is, um, is creating a space for listeners to learn about, um, either things happening in the health field, the medical field, the strength and conditioning field, fitness field, um, in a way that's kind of presented to them in a, in a plain uh, language. And I love creating parallels and bridges between different thoughts. So, and for those who don't know, um, I was in New York City a couple weeks ago, almost a month ago now, and I attended Tim's course um, 
and he brought up a very interesting scenario that he had where he was having some back pain um, and was having trouble dealing with it and um, met Peter O'Sullivan through that. You want to kind of elaborate? I thought, I thought it was a really cool way to kind of, to bridge like the strength coach and then the current where physio is going and pain science and all that good stuff. So go ahead and go ahead. Yeah. Look, um, you know, I think I, I told the story of how if, if you did, if you talked to me two years ago about the biopsychosocial model um, of pain or fatigue, I would have looked at you and said, you know, I, I'm not too sure about that. You know, it just sounds a little bit too abstract for, for someone like me. Um, but I, I had to go through my own my own pain experience to really appreciate it. Um, so so I did I, I had an incident where I, I landed on my back and there there was a lot of um, physical issues that, that came with that. So I was getting um, a lot of a lot of neural pain, referred pain down into my calf and into my feet. Um, it was affecting a lot of a lot of things, and uh, I everywhere I went, I was getting it a lot on the plane when I was when I was seated for long periods of time because I just didn't have time to stretch. So I just figured it was um, a physical issue um, associated with sitting for long periods. So um, everywhere I went, I, I heard this name Peter O'Sullivan, and um, you know I was I was kind of oblivious to Peter O'Sullivan. I was just just had my blinkers on thinking about the work I was doing and load and fatigue and load and preparing athletes for, for competition. Yeah. But, but just to the, in the next lane beside me was Peter O'Sullivan doing the exact same thing, but in with people in pain. Right. Um, so we, we had a, a, you know, a phone consult similar to what we're doing now. And he, he was really good the way he sort of talked me through um, the issue and he sort of led me down the path to to the solution without actually giving me the solution and without actually laying a hand on me mm-hmm. um, and he, he said well just t- um, talk me uh, talk me through uh, when you get this pain I said well I get it when I'm when I'm seated for long periods of time when I'm on a plane for a long period of time I get it he said okay that's that's interesting um, tell me a bit more and I said well I, I get it when I'm when I'm standing as well, like if I have to stand behind someone when I'm waiting to find my seat in a plane, um, I get it then. And um, he said, okay, interesting. He said, let's let's think a, a bit further. He said, when else do you get it? I said, well, I notice it when I, when I walk into the airport and when I'm standing at check-in, um, I notice it then and, um, and it's really my, my calf starts to throb. And he, he said, okay, um, what's going through your mind when you when you go into the airport, and I, I said, "Oh well, you know, I'm, I'm leaving for a different country. I know it's going to be a long trip. Um, I'm I don't really know where I where I'm going when I get there. Um, so you know, there's a few things going on." And, and he he said, "Oh look, um, have you considered that that this this might actually be due to something else? That this these sensations that you're feeling might be driven by something else." And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, how do you cope with stress normally? And then it was like the little the light bulb moment um, that 
every everything that I described was was a um, stress was driving that pain, or and he didn't even use the word pain. He just used the word sensations, which was which was good. Yeah. Um, so he, he 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 first the first thing he showed me was that it, that I can have these sensations and they have nothing to do with injury. Um, that it's it's it, it's not it's it's not necessarily physical. That there's other things that can be driving this pain, which is you know it's, it's common sense when we think about it. But you needs I needed someone at that point in time to show me. And the other thing that I really liked about him that he he listened to what I believed, and and my belief was that when I train hard, I feel stronger. I feel mentally, I feel better. I feel resilient. So he worked with that belief and. He, he put me in positions, and this is, again, over Skype. He put me in positions, body positions, where previously I felt vulnerable. And he, he put me into those positions. He said, right, I want you to do it again, and I want you to do it again. And he showed me that, that this, this perceived threat was just irrational. There was, no, there was no rational thought. There was no damage. There was no danger. And he said, he said when you get tired of, of this position, when you feel fatigued, I want you to do it some more," he said. And, and then, when you get really, really tired after you've done fifteen or twenty reps of this, and you feel like you can't do any more, and your muscles are burning, and, and that that issue, the sensations that you're feeling are really burning, I want you to load it some more. So his he was kind of working with my beliefs about load that that load is a good thing, but he was yeah. also um, highlighting the fact that. Um, there's a lot more resilience there than we than we realise. Um, you're not just going to magically break. Um, so it was a it was a really good it was a really good learning experience for me. I, I didn't like I would have preferred not to go through it, right. the the pain that that came with it. But you know, I, I learned a lot from it, and I also I also gained a, a really good appreciation of Peter and his work and and all the people that he works with. And I think I think it's just a fascinating area. I know. Very little about it, but um, you know, I think they, they're doing terrific work um, in in dispelling some of the myths around around pain. Mm-hmm. What kind so of Tim? I'm I'm curious how like <clears throat> so after after you spoke with with Peter, how did you actually feel like your your next flight? Did did you have any of the sensations, or was it gone? Did you just when they came on? Did you just do what he told you and? How'd you, how'd you um, yeah, look, it's kind of, I don't, I don't know what they would call it, but it's kind of like, um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, I guess, where um, I, I, know, I know the triggers now. I know that a, few, you know, a week leading into a big trip, I, um, that things start to change from a stress point of view. So I need to manage that. Um, and I need to, you know, I just need to put some, some, processes in place to to make sure i stay relaxed and and keep calm and and but also um it's it's about looking after my own health as well so you know making sure that i that i get the sleep i need making sure that i keep that i that i keep my training up because that that is an important thing of keeping me healthy um but but even while i'm on the plane having some processes in place to to stay, you know, breathing exercises or whatever to stay relaxed, but also when I need to move, get up and move and, and stretch and, um, or, or, you know, do some calf raises or whatever I need to do to keep my body moving. So there's, you know, like really simple, really simple strategies that, that mm-hmm. you, you look at it and you go, well, 
that's that's not um, that's not rocket science at all. But that's that's the beauty of it that anyone can can benefit from this approach. What kind of? Uh, uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Joey. No, that that probably the same thing. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I don't know if. So I don't know how familiar you are with cognitive behavioral therapy and like the idea of internal loads or I know um, Peter O'Sullivan and a lot of the other cognitive behavioral therapists talk a lot about uh, what's going into your cup before you start to experience pain. So whether that be um, stressors with work, family life, sleep, nutrition, um, just whatever is going through your day and that go that all going in your cup. And whenever the cup overflows, then you are at a higher tendency to experience pain or the pain that you are experiencing tends to be worse. How does that, that idea, how does that interact with your idea of uh, rate of perceived exertion and how you track that with training load? Well, look, I think, I think it's a really good analogy and, and pretty, it, it aligns pretty closely. Uh, you know, we, we talk about, um, we talk about uh, load and we talk about performance and, and it'd be really easy if we just, if we just thought, well, in order to improve performance, all you need to do is load more, but it's, it's not that simple because at, at, um, at any point in time, what we're talking about is load and capacity um, in order to, to improve your capacity, you need to have your load slightly greater than your capacity at that point in time, which raises your capacity, allows you to load more. So it's like a seesaw. Yeah. But at any point in time, your capacity is is influenced by health factors. Um, so your, your stress or your sleep or hydration or nutrition or lifestyle factors. And so, so your capacity today could be very different from your capacity tomorrow even though your strength or your fitness hasn't changed at all. Um, so the load that you can, the weight that you can lift on Monday could be completely different from the, the weight that you can lift on Wednesday or Friday. Um, so, so to me, the capacity, load capacity is essentially your glass. Um, the, and your glass is, you can only fill a glass up to 100%. Um, if it's water, you can only get enough water to fill it up to the brim. If you, if you fill that glass up with, with all these external factors that are that are negative factors, whether it be stress or lack of sleep, then you've only got a limited amount of good load that you can put into that glass. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with um, you know in terms of the the session RPE and, and internal load. I think it's the same concept. Everyone at any point in time has a finite capacity, um, and there's only so much load you can put in your glass at any point in time. Before, before that glass overfill, overflows and it and it creates a mess. Do you do you think that could potentially kind of bridge bridge a few gaps between the strength and conditioning world and the the medical world? Absolutely, and I, I think I think we're already seeing it. I think we're already <laughs> seeing it. Um, you know, historically. I think physical therapists and the medical world have have known the value of load, um, but but somewhere along the line, um, 
they've they've either moved away from from the value of physical loading, or or strength and conditioning have come in and, and taken that space. But um, so you know the the idea is not that we have strength and conditioning at, at one end of the spectrum and physical therapists at the other end. We want we want those guys working together, and we want we want everyone on the same page of well, what are we actually preparing for? If we're talking about an athlete, what do we want that athlete to do? We we want them to have the best performances possible. Okay, well that's something that we all agree on. So there might be a heap of things that strength and conditioning and medical don't agree on, but that's one thing we do on. We do agree on. We want them to be the best they can possibly be. Okay, yeah. so in order to get to, to that that point, how are we going to get there? And and to me, um, loading and loading appropriately, it's a massive rock. If, if we can agree on that, let's focus on this big thing that we agree on rather than these little things we don't we don't agree on. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, th- I think in general, we have the same mindset. We know that load is good, but we just, we have different pressures. So, so strength and conditioning coaches, they have the pressure of, we need to make sure that they're as fit as possible. That's a, a real pressure that strength and conditioning coaches are, are under. And, and sometimes what happens is they have to load uh, really heavily and really fast, which causes problems or potentially causes problems. Sorry, Joe. I'm you go. Glad that, no, I'm, I'm just glad that you brought that up, talking about load in the different spectrum and how as physios that, you know, we used to really seek out load. And as a profession as a whole, we've sort of gotten away from it. Um, I actually have a clinic inside a powerlifting gym. And just today I was actually talking with somebody and they, they their own perception. Now, this is a powerlifter who's used to lifting hundreds of pounds. And their perception of the exercises and things that I should be doing with them because it was quote unquote uh, physical therapy was were just more of these quote unquote basic exercises or in lighter loads. And I was like, no, I mean, physical therapy is loading it and getting you back to what you want to do. If that entails a, <clears throat> a, a, a dumbbell rather than a barbell because we need to get more of an asymmetrical loading or we want to isolate and emphasize a certain area to get back into loading, you know, a squat, a deadlift to get you back to that support specific, then that's what we need to do. Um, so both a strength conditioning coach and, and, a, and a physio really need to be in, you know, in line with their whole thought process on that. I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, look, it's, uh, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see, um, let's, let's take a football player. You know, the football mm-hmm. player has to do some amazing things. They have to be strong, they have to be powerful, and they have to be fast. And so so most people go, well, you know, in order to do that, you have to lift heavy, you have to run fast, you, you have to do powerful movements. And, of course, that's part of what you do. But underpinning all of that is some structural strength. And, um, and we're talking about um, structure-specific um, strength. So you... That's where I think a lot of this this work that that your your um, your powerlifting guys gone their basic exercises. Well, they might be basic exercises that don't don't look like the sport specific exercises or sport specific loading that you need to do in order to, to do those maximal effort tasks. But they 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 provide the structural integrity to to allow you to do those those high level tasks, the stronger you are at those lower level tasks, the more likely you can load on top of that 
so you can load heavy in the in the weight room, and then you can you can handle the loads that come with competition. Um, I, I think it's such a really important part that we've, we've kind of missed the point that it's not it's not us first them. We're all in it together. And we're all trying to build robustness. How are we going to get there? Joe, you got anything to add to that? I feel like I go off a hundred ways with that. <laughs> I know. I, I, I really, I completely agree. I think we need to have much more like inner relationships. I know much more here in the States anyway. I've seen a lot more physios actually placed in gyms, which has been great. And there's it's much more of a continuum um, where, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, physical therapy here was – you saw, uh, you saw a doc, a medical, medical doctor. They sent you to therapy, and the patients or clients really thought that you were just doing a handout of exercises that were sent over um, and that you did the same exercises day in and day out. And I, I really like the shift that is just happening all together. Um, yeah, look, it's um, – you know, I think, I think if we can just um... – yeah, look, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know all of the answers to this stuff. I, you know, if I if I had all the answers, I, you know, we we would we would be able to reduce a, a lot of the injuries and we'd have better performances. You know, I, this is this is my just my thoughts on um, if we can work together as a group and, and take out some of some of the, the the egos, the turf battles, those those breakdowns of communication. I, th- I think we give our athletes a chance, and, and that's you know there's no guarantees that that anyone's going to win a gold medal or break a world record or, or win a championship. But um, what what athletes want to know is um, you're asking me to to work hard for this for, for you, or you're working hard uh, to ask me to work hard for this team. Are you prepared to do the same for me? And and they know. If, if the medical team and the strength and conditioning team aren't talking together or, or they're butting heads, they know that. So as soon as they see that, they go, well, if it's not important enough for you guys to work together why and work hard for me, why should I work hard for you? Um, so, you know, I just I think if we could just step back from um, who, who own the ownership of it all and, and who's going to get credit and just go, well, why are we actually here? And the, and the reason we're, we're in these environments, whether it be sport, whether it be military, whether it be dance, whether it be the circus, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to get people to achieve special things as a group or as an individual. And we're trying to, to create a situation where they're achieving things that they previously thought they couldn't do um, or they previously couldn't do. And, and when we create an environment like that, you know, now we've taken the limits away. Now we're in an environment where anything's possible. Um, but I, I just wonder whether a lot of the people who work in these high-performance environments, I wonder whether they care enough to actually be prepared to do that. Are they? Do they care enough to step back and go, you know what, I'm, I'm prepared to put this athlete or I'm prepared to put the team ahead of my individual needs. That's, that's where I think it breaks down. Do you think from the strength and conditioning standpoint, that's where it breaks down? Because I have, I have a couple ideas on where it breaks down from the, the physio or the medical 
standpoint. But do you think that's like the roadblock from the strength conditioning side at this point in time? Uh, look, I, I don't know whether it's the strength and conditioning or the medical team. Like, I, I think you could go into different different environments, right? And and you would find a roadblock that's that's completely different. Um, I think I think it's a between the two, it's a common roadblock. Um, yeah. It's not the only one, too. Like, we we need to have some understanding from coaches. Just to, they don't need to be scientists, but they need to understand that if we can get this loading right. It's a big rock that it's going to help you perform. It's going to have your players available, um, and uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm really tired. And you, you've you've met Will, so you, you know my philosophy on this bit. I'm really tired of the this mentality that we have to pull athletes out of training. We have to pull them out of of games um, because we're because of load management. But the load management to me is not about that. It's about how can we give them to the coaches more often. And how can we make sure that when we give them to the coaches, they're in the best best shape possible? That when the coach asks them to jump, they say how high, and they and they're ready to perform. They're ready to eat nails. Um, that's that's the kind of mindset I want to I want to develop in my athletes. But it's also the kind of mindset from a coaching point of view. I want my coaches to to have faith that that I'm there to do the best thing for them, and that. That not only do I, I want to deliver an athlete in good shape, but um, that they can trust me that that I'm going to do my best to support them and provide an athlete that's that's ready to perform for the coach. Right. Um, I, I couldn't say for certain where the main the main problem is because it, it varies from from team to team. But yeah, uh, I yeah, think it, for it, for the medical side, that that concept or that th- same thing that is is a struggle on our side is, is the dichotomy of, okay, there's an injury. And I, I hear this all the time. So like specifically for me, I work with a lot of CrossFitters and if there's always, there's always this one guy in the gym that has knee pain, right? And anytime there's a warm up and there's a jog, they don't run. They just, they have convinced themselves that their knee is going to flare up every time they run so they become the either the airdyne bike or the rower and they every time there's a 400 meter run they're doing a 400 meter bike or row and it's like they've convinced themselves that it's running but but i always ask how far can you run before it starts to hurt is it 100 meters is it 300 meters or so on and so forth and then they start to think to themselves, oh, it's, or you have to kind of walk them through kind of like how Peter O'Sullivan walked you through the, the calf yeah. issue where it's like, if you can look at it from a different way, it's not inherently the running, it's how much you're running, what are the other things that you're doing on top of the running, but we can start small and build up from there to increase tolerance. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. It's, um, you know, if, 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 Everyone else is doing a 400 meter run. You know there must be some point where you can actually do some running because if you can't do any running at all, then why are you playing the sport? Um, so, so I would look at well, where can we where can we fill that glass yeah. with running? What's the point where we can can we fill it with 100 meters? Can we fill it with 200 meters? And then the rest of the glass we top up with with the rowing or the cycling load. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as you say, it's it's um, graded exposure. Can we now go from one or two hundred meters up to 
150 to 250 meters or 200 to 300. Um, so eventually we're just, we're just building them up to the point where um, systematically we're bringing them back to the loads that they need in order to, to perform the task of a sport. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, and it, it's always going to be a push and pull. It's always going to be, okay, can we push a little bit further here? How do you respond to that? Yeah. My knee feels good. Or can we push a little further? Um, no, my knee's feeling terrible today. Okay, we'll, we'll pull you back. We'll see if we can find something else for you to do. So there's, there's always going to be that um, load and response to load before before you decide whether you're going to load again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but I, I think I think trying to fill the glass up with the most important tasks is, is probably a good way to go about it. Right. From, from your perspective or from what you deal with with your athletes regularly, how do you, how do you um, I guess, explain to athletes who are, who are struggling with the internal stressors? Like you have the, you have the strength conditioning, the external load, all that stuff. The program is solid. They're handling it well. But then there's some other things that are going on that like keep overflowing their cup. Um, especially in the world of like, if we're dealing with, with the average patient who's active, right. And, and they come to the clinic and they have knee pain, they have, they have web MD'd it. So they know it's like, Oh, I have runner's knee. Right. How do you, how do you explain to them that? Yes. You know, your knee might hurt whenever you squat a little bit because, or jump a little bit because of some of these factors, but like, let's look at the other internal load and how, how that accounts for or how that's trending towards in the research to be just as important. Yeah. Great, great question. Um, you know, the, the more and more, I, the more and more I look at this area, I, I feel like, you know, we can prescribe the ideal perfect program, um, in terms of external load. Yeah. Uh, but, anything can throw that out on a daily basis. Um, so it could be lack of sleep or it could be, um, you know, stress or it could be that they've, they've gone out on a, a two day bender and they've, they've, and they've, you know, they've, they're celebrating a good win or whatever, you know, so yeah. there's, there's so many factors that can, that can impact on, on your ability to handle load in this case, external load. Um, and I don't, I don't think, I don't think I've got a recipe for it. But I, I think the the best way that I that I've been able to do it in the past is just getting to know my athletes individually and just working out what makes them tick. Um, so some some people can handle can, can handle load. They they don't necessarily dial into social media, so they don't get they're not on their phones a lot at night. So they sleep well, and they don't they don't bring a lot of that external stress. And they're pretty laid back, so they, they just they just truck on with load. But then there's others that 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 probably um, they either have family stress um, or you know that whatever other factors in their life they don't sleep as well as they lot as they should. So so trying to help educate them around you know some of the things that are going to improve their tolerance to training right. is an important thing. But but also acknowledging the fact that everyone has different backgrounds and this sort of ties in with the biopsychosocial model yeah. is uh, these that 
you know, you can have someone who is is physically looks rock hard. He, he wins all the all the performance tests, and then he fatigues really quickly in a game or in training. And you look at it and you go, this doesn't make any sense. Why is someone who's winning all our, all of our physical tests unable to train, unable to compete? Um, so in that case, you probably look at it and say, well, it's, it's not a physical issue. There must be something else that we need to tap into. We need to understand about this player to try and get more out of them um, from a performance point of view. So um, understanding some of those challenges and, and using the biopsychosocial model to understand um, the different challenges that your different athletes have, I think can... Can, it can actually improve your relationships with them. It makes your training a bit more individualised and probably gives you a better chance of getting good performances from them. Yeah. It ultimately, to me, sounds like humans are humans. Like, regardless <laughs> regardless of if they're the 72-year-old lady with low back pain or the 23-year-old professional rugby player who squats 500 pounds like all of the other external factors that relate to internal load are the same yeah look it'd be it'd be so much easier if it was just um you know a cookie cutter type of approach and and this is the recipe to deal with this person with this particular condition um and there would be a lot more people doing it i suppose um but you know, I guess we're we're all trying to trying to learn the best way to deal with with specific conditions, but also the best way to deal with different people um, with specific conditions. And and to me, I, I think taking the time to just talk with with that athlete, and I, I talk I say the word athlete because I've, I've kind of stopped using the word patient. Um, I'm trying to trying to think of these people as as being somewhere along an athletic somewhere along an athletic continuum. Right. So whether they're in rehab or whether they're an 80-year-old grandma who just needs to, to carry their, their groceries up three flights of stairs or they're an elite NBA player, that we're still talking about um, we're talking about uh, people who are along an athletic continuum. Um, so, yeah, I, I think working with those individual people, finding out what makes them tick on an individual basis, Trying to work out some of their beliefs around around training and loading, I think that'll give you um, some pretty good insights into how to treat them, how to manage their uh, their individual rehab or training programs. Right, I agree. Joey, what do you think? No, I mean, <clears throat> I agree with all of it. The so, I guess one question I have for you with with this internal load. Um, are you having like do you have your athletes calculate it some way or like do you keep a journal of it so you can sort of see the progress or see the change um, for session to session uh, yeah well yeah um, depending on on the level of athlete we if we're if we're working with elite teams then then typically we have some resources around them to to make it as easy as possible so we have apps that they can use and it's all set up for them. All the calculations are set up for them. So all they have to do is enter their number, um, the, the training session they did and, and how how long they trained for and everything else is done. Um, but if, if we're talking about someone who's who, who might be entering one of your clinics who's not an elite athlete, 
you can still do it. Um, it's it's quite simple to um, track training load, and and if you if you educate them around um, the session RPE and educate them around what is a hard session and and um, the more they train, the the more experiences they can draw on to to use as their anchors. Um, it, it's quite an easy process, and and you could, um, you know, in theory, you could you could get them tracking their own loads, and they can like I've seen it in um, in in clinics already. People people reach out all the time and say, look. Uh, I, I had this issue. I, I was in pain, and now I finished a marathon. And this is how I did it. And they they put they put their programs up, and it shows how they track their loads. It shows how their loads were um, trending up over time. Um, and there's so many good stories like that of people who'd never tracked load before, and they've they've just started doing it really easily. So um, yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty easy for most people to do. That's uh, it's it's funny you say that because like at the at the powerlifting gym that I'm at right now, everybody does everything based off the RPE, so it's very familiar. Everybody everybody uses RPE. The coach is there. That's how they do all the auto regulation. So they use the RPE, the internal load, to figure out exactly what the next step they're going to do with the weights, with the training, um, and everything. And they everybody's got their own book, so every person that walks into that gym is already calculating it and. They still do it on paper, which drives me nuts. I'm like, guys, make an Excel sheet and put it all, put it all together. But they still, old-fashioned, just they handwrite everything. But it's a, uh, it's, yeah. it's really cool to see people already doing that. Yeah, look, you're, you're, I think it's great that they're doing that. The, the fact that they're using external load with the, the weight they're lifting and an internal load with the RPO, I think that's that's perfect. Uh, it's a really you know, a really great approach. And the fact that they're using um, pen and paper, that's that's okay too. Some people like Excel sheets, some people like pen and paper. I, I worked with a coach and he was an outstanding coach of, of Olympic level athletes, a lot of quality athletes. Um, I, don't, I don't think he would have ever opened a computer in his life. But if you asked him what he did on uh, the 20th of February, uh, 1999, he would go to his diary and he'd pull out that, that and that program and he'd have it um, mm. like set for set exact and he would have notes on what he liked about that session where he could have improved I mean it, it's hard to contextualize over you know eight years of data but that was the way he coached um, so it's you know diff, different people do it different ways but it's, it's great that they're actually um, looking at load and seeing it as something that's valuable yeah, uh, very much. One of the guys actually, we were sitting there and we were talking. I was talking to one of the coaches, um, and he came up and he. We were talking about RPE, and I sort of wanted to like get his take on it and everything. And it was so funny because he actually brought up one of your studies, and he's like, "Oh, there's a study with this guy Tim Gavin." <laughs> I was just laughing. I was like, "I'm gonna be on a podcast with him next week." <laughs> yeah. So. so this was this was a sports coach. Uh, yeah, so he, it's funny cause he, he's a financial advisor, um, for a profession and just really got into powerlifting and just took, took all this as like a, you know, a hobby. And so he is, he's really good with numbers. So he's a strength coach on the side. Um, but he researches okay. into it and everything, but as a, as a profession, he's a financial advisor. Nice. Well, I, th I think, uh, I think that's excellent. You know, the, um, more, more and more 
and it'll take a little bit of time, but the, the more and more that we can get coaches coming along to these these things and talking about load and, and not bombarding them with science, just here's some here's some simple ways that we can progress your athletes when they when they come back from off season break and you've got to get them ready in a two week preseason. How are you going to do that and, and get them there as safely as you can? Um, so it's it's kind of uh, it's good. The more we can we can sort of have some normal conversations with the sports coaches and and, and make science accessible to them um, in, in a user friendly way, a coach friendly way. I think um, the better the better it's going to be, and, and the, we're going to get better performances, and we're going to hopefully keep our athletes injury free and healthy. Yeah, that's definitely the plan all around. Tim, I have one nerdy question for you. So we, we've talked mostly about uh, principles and and how those kind of um, go with practicalities in the world. Um, and Joe was talking about the powerlifting gym that he's at. With For me, with, with mostly being in the CrossFit gyms, I've seen kind of a trend where a lot of gyms are purchasing these um, heart rate um, monitors that people like will put around their chest and wear during a workout mm-hmm. from a, from a research standpoint in terms of if we're trying to decrease injury risk in a workout setting or a training setting, how much, where, where's the research going in terms of tracking heart rate and heart rate variability versus RPE rate of perceived exertion and internal load? Um, look, I, I that we're we're talking about a few different things there. So, so heart rate and RPE are both measures of internal load. Right. Uh, one one's an objective measure. Heart yeah. rate's an objective measure. Yeah. RPE is a subjective measure. Yeah. So, so if you don't value the subjective opinions of your athletes, then you might lean more towards heart rate. Right. Um, but if if you value knowing how hard how how they how your athletes perceived the intensity of that session then session rpe is going to be pretty valuable uh, heart rate variability um is used as a as a measure of, of recovery i guess uh, a measure of um, autonomic nervous system activity right. uh, and, and we know that that heart rate variability can um is a moderator of the workload injury relationship yeah. So um, I think in that respect, I think potential potentially it has has some value because it's not just about um, spiking workloads and then you're definitely going to get injured. That that's not what we're saying. There is a risk that comes with rapidly increasing loads, but mm-hmm. um, some people can handle that better than others. And heart rate variability might give you an indication of that, mm-hmm. but. So might a, a number of other moderators, such as age or injury history or their chronic load at, at any point in time or physical characteristics such as their strength or aerobic fitness. Right. Um, so there's a, there's a, I think these individual moderators is, is probably where the research will head. Um, I, I don't think you can, you can quantify load and just look at external load and say we've captured external we've captured load Mm -hmm. um i think i think you have to have some measure of the internal response to that load and that will that will help you interpret whether someone is um 
either overtraining or undertraining, or right. there's some sort of maladaptation that's that's going on, or that they're adapting to the training stress on its own. Um, external load won't won't give you all the pieces of the information you need, um, and then it's just a matter of which one you value the most. Yeah, RPE has been used a lot for a long period of time, and mm-hmm. it's 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 cheap and it's um, it's really easy to use. So any person can use RPE. You don't have to, um, uh, you know, ex- uh, pay a lot of money out on uh, heart rate technology or whatever to use it. And that's not to say heart rate technology is not important, but it's it's just that it will cost you to buy it. Right. So should we be looking at <clears throat> capturing both external and internal load for everybody? And then, because you, you, you sort of mentioned that, there's there's no real number or no spike in change that has been correlated to any injuries. Um, so should, should we be calculating both for both the external and internal load? And is there a way to calculate them against each other? Would that give us any data? Or do we just look at both of them separately and see the changes within them each? Does that make sense? Um. Well, look, there's, there's definitely uh, there's no magic number for, for any variable, but I, I think um, most people would agree that when you rapidly increase load, you increase injury risk. Um, so that's that's it's been a, a pretty common theme, you know, that, that dates back more than you know more than recent times. It dates back for for as long as I've been studying um, sports science and sports medicine. Um, the the thing that I, I try and do with with my external load and internal load variables and some external load variables are hard to track um, for some sports there it's it's not easy if you've got a, a competitive surfer um, mm. you know Kelly Slater how do you how do you track the external load when you're surfing um, it's it's achievable you can do it but probably not for the recreational surfer it's a little bit harder mm-hmm. um, cool. but when you when you can track external and internal load I, I try and combine those two those two um, variables so I don't I don't interpret any variable in isolation so external load I, I look at it and I, and I see whether it's tracking in the way I want it to but I also I compare that the way it's tracking with how internal load is tracking as well um, same with the, the acute chronic workload ratio. I don't interpret that on its own. I, I will I will look at that in, in terms of a number of background variables. And, and one of the big ones for me is chronic load. So you can have a, an acute chronic workload ratio that's theoretically in the sweet spot, but if you've got someone in rehab, for example, they might be in the sweet spot from the acute chronic ratio, but their chronic load might be so close to the basement that they're not actually prepared for anything. Um, mm-hmm. So you always need to in- interpret it with at least some other variable, um, and, and it just takes time to work out what those those variables are for for every every different sport. There's a lot of different sports that will have their own variables. Sure, sure. Um, as far, as far as like external load, I know for the past few years. I mean, God, before I even went to university, um, we always based off the premise of no more than a ten week. 10% change per week. Um, and that's actually still one of the things that I, even as a physio, I tell a lot of people, and it's not that I try to keep it such a hardcore number um, or hard set number, but more of just try to get people with the idea, let's not load too quickly 
Um, I don't know yeah. if I should look at changing that number. It seems to be just an easy percentage base that you know people can sort of just follow along with. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a, that's a, a, a really great question because um, you know whether the ten percent rule actually exists because <laughs> everyone who's been involved in in, in sport or, or training an athlete has heard of the ten percent rule, and it's really common mm -hmm. in in runners. Um, so. So, you know, if you're a runner, you've, you've heard of the 10% rule. But in terms of research evidence, there's a systematic review that's been done that, that found, I think, four, four studies that have, that have actually shown some evidence for the 10% rule. Um, so it, it, the, the question I, I have is um, where does it actually come from? It, it must, it must <laughs> have come from somewhere, presumably in the almost like a practice-based evidence that this is what we think is, is appropriate. Um, to me, uh, again, that, that change, that 10% change, probably needs to be interpreted with where you've come from. So if you've mm -hmm. come from the basement, if you've been in bed rest for a year, then 10% might be too great. And if you're at the ceiling, if you're a, a marathon runner and you're, you're already running 200 kilometres a week, then adding an extra 10% on top of that is going to be really, really hard. Um, it might be closer to 1% or half a percent. So you, you need to interpret the 10% change relative to your chronic load. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting one for me because uh, you know, I'm aware of the 10% rule. I've seen some limited evidence that, um, of, of increased risk when you, when you go over 10%. But... The, the, the volume of, of research evidence behind it is, is not great, but it's come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. True. Okay. Well, I think we're reaching the sweet spot of, of the time frame here. <laughs> uh, pardon. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, that was the cheesiest joke I've made all week. No, um, that's okay. Because if we go, if we go over this time, it become we go into the danger zone and who, who knows what we start talking about then. Oh God. <laughs> We're gonna edit. We're gonna edit in highway to the danger zone. That was <laughs> the perfect bit to do that, yeah. and I I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, uh, good, good. Joey, you have anything else before we wrap up? Uh, no, I don't. I wanted to say thanks, thanks for everything. But could you do us a favor? Would you mind letting people know if they want to uh, find out more about you? Would you mind telling them ways that they they can connect with you? I know you do various workshops. If they're interested in checking them out, can you let them know where they can find find some of this information out so they can maybe attend? Yeah, look, I, I'm. You can find me on on social media, but it, um, I, I'm a little bit slow to respond there. But if you if you go to gabbettperformance.com, it's got all our uh, all our workshops it's got a few few blogs and a few papers and you can always um, email us directly through there um, and you know that that way I'm going to see the I'm going to see the message um, I'm, I'm a little bit slow getting back to, to people but um, pretty much all the time I, I'll get back to you I'll get back in touch so um, just uh, yeah reach out and if I can help anyway I, I will um, I'm heading over to the States in, in July uh, hopefully going to get down to I'll be in Chicago, Boston, and hopefully New Orleans. So um, it'd be great to we'll do some two-day workshops there. Look forward yeah, what to about it. Your social media, Tim. Social media? Yeah. What 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 are your handles? Oh, uh, they're a little bit different on different places because I, <laughs> I, um, I I messed I messed the first couple up. So you'll probably see a few Tim <laughs> on, on Instagram. Um, 
I yeah, I've got a, I've got three followers on one, and I think they're all my family. Um, <laughs> but uh, so on Instagram, it's at at Gabbett Tim. On Twitter, it's at Tim Gabbett. And okay. would you mind uh, spelling Gabbett? Gabbett for the yeah, yeah it's G A B B E T T. Got it. Yeah, um, and you can always you can always Google. Google the name, and I'm sure you'll you'll find me eventually. Um, and like I said, I'll I'll do my best to to get back in touch. If you reach out, I'll um, I'll get back in touch with you. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show, Tim. It's yeah, been a pl- pleasure, Maverick. It's been a pleasure, Goose. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, look, I, re- I, I really I really appreciate them. Uh, what you guys are doing so you know like you're um you're, you're uh, getting out good information um you're putting it out in a user-friendly way and i just really like the people i'm meeting over there everyone's pretty respectful and and humble about the way they're, they're doing things so uh, keep up the great work appreciate it appreciate it thank you so much for listening Follow us for more content on Instagram and Facebook at The Alinea Collective and our website, TheAlineaCollective.com. Additional platforms you can download the podcast include iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, or wherever else you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping weekly.